You're about to hear my conversation with Dustin Reed, our Chief Fixed Income Strategist. We talk all about the U.S., Canada, Bank of Japan, and then we get into some of the trades that they've put on in their portfolios. I hope you enjoy. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Information relating to investment approaches or individual investments should not be construed as advice or endorsement. Listeners should seek professional advice for their situation. Welcome to the McKenzie Investments Podcast. My name is Matthew Schnur, and I'm delighted to be back with my regular guest, Dustin Reed, our Chief Fixed Income Strategist. Dustin, welcome back. Hey, Matt. Thanks very much for having me back on certainly been a busy uh, macro environment uh, over the recent past. So I'm really looking forward to getting your thoughts uh, on a number of different geographies. But let's start with the U.S. Uh, yesterday was a Federal Reserve meeting, uh, lots of discussion in general uh, on the U.S. over the over the past uh, few weeks. I'd love to get your views on what you're paying attention to and, and what's driving markets. Yeah, for sure. The Fed meeting, I think, this week was was definitely interesting. The supply and fiscal dynamic, obviously, in the U.S. is probably just as equally interesting, if not more so, in terms of a thematic and driver for markets. So maybe first on the Fed meeting itself. So the Fed um, is a non-forecast meeting for the Fed, so no update to the dot plot, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Fed held rates as expected. Very, very little was priced in going into the meeting. I think literally one basis point, maybe even slightly less than a basis point. So it was really a, a, non, a non-event meeting. Uh, the statement from the Fed did not change very, very much. They, uh, they, they tweaked a few things on the margin. One was uh, an ever so slight downgrade on the economic outlook, but it went from solid to strong. So still, you know, very, very constructive language. And they added credit conditions, uh, sorry, they added financial conditions into the already existing credit conditions and tightening credit conditions as a reason why there might be a bit of a risk or risk to the economic outlook on the horizon. So adding financial uh, in addition to um, the already existing credit side. So I thought that was interesting. And that's obviously a reference to much higher rates on you know, just in terms of the curve, right? Bond yields higher, and especially the long end of the curve. And some of that work is probably doing the Fed's heavy lifting for it. And that's mm. not a surprise. That's general economic theory anyway. And uh, we've seen a lot of... Uh, we've seen a lot of Fed speakers in the last three, four weeks ish uh, talk about that that relationship and that narrative, and and that the the big move higher in yields is obviously having a, a tightening impact on financial conditions. So I think that's you know that's been that's been a, that's been a key theme. The the press conference from from Powell was uh, as always a little bit of something, a little bit of something for everybody. Uh, clearly, they are not willing to give up on. Another increase in rates in the policy rate, the Fed funds rate, uh, if needed, and if the if the economic data outperforms. But I think the bar to hiking rates here is extremely high, hmm. extremely high. And even we had this Waller speech, Governor Waller speech, a few weeks ago, and he even suggested that the September uh, forecast round, even if they met expectations at the September forecast round. And recall the September forecast round had one more hike penciled in for this year, either the the November meeting that we just had this week or the December meeting. Even meeting economic expectations wouldn't be enough. Uh, and those and in those six weeks or so, the the calculus had changed. Why? Because the yield curve had moved higher. Uh, rates were, you know, long end rates were significantly higher and doing a lot of the Fed's tightening or heavy lifting for it. So I think Powell's uh, press conference this week at the 
at the FOMC uh, kind of reiterated that that narrative. And so while they're not going to totally close the door and say that the rate hiking cycle is done, it's clear that the bar for another one is is pretty high. That said, very, very strong language during the press conference around a question regarding, are you thinking about, I'm paraphrasing a bit, but are you thinking about rate cuts? And, and the answer essentially is no, no, not at all. Uh, we haven't even had that discussion. And he even went a little bit further and started to suggest we haven't really even had the how high for how long, or at least for how long part of it. Hmm. They're really trying to find the right equilibrium uh, for Fed funds, which obviously still sits at five and a quarter to five and a half Fed funds is a, is a targeted range as opposed to here in Canada where it's a it's a point the policy rate's a point a point estimate right or a point a point rate so to speak five percent so they are trying to figure out if five and a quarter to five and a half current Fed funds uh, target range is the appropriate level to remove what I would call accommodation from the economy so that uh, inflation continues to come lower uh, but it doesn't have a a massive uh, negative impact or you know significant economic malaise on the output side, and the Fed can somewhat engineer maybe a soft landing, which obviously it's it's aiming it's aiming to do. So that's essentially the Fed's I would say the Fed kind of view here and and what's happened. So you know we we have not called since February for a, uh, a move beyond five and a quarter five and a half. We've been at five and a quarter five and a half where the Fed is now since late February, and uh, July obviously was the last was the last hike. In the in the in the cycle, and it may end up proving to be the last hike. We'll see. Um, I would say that a number of people are saying, and I would probably agree with this, that December is probably unlikely at this point. And if they are going to hike, they probably need to see more sum totality of the economic data, which sounds a little a little wild because. Obviously, the last hike was July, so you get to you get to December, and you're pushing you're pushing six months. So, how much right. more do you need to see? But I got the impression, and I think a number of other people that I spoke with uh, this week around uh, right after the FOMC think that December is not necessarily in play, and if something's more in play, it might be January. And the market's been skewing that way anyway. They had the market, I shouldn't say that it it has it has been peaking in terms of Fed funds futures expectations. It's been peaking uh, in January. Uh, uh, the market's been peaking in January for a bit, so I think that's been pretty interesting, you know, for markets. And I think I think Powell essentially assumed that that was, uh, or at least at least went along that tangent, you know, for his press conference yesterday. The other thing that, in running in parallel here, that's obviously been a big driver for markets is what's been happening on the supply side, right, and and, and fiscal. Um, so without without necessarily revealing my age, uh, you know, for in the twenty something years that I've been doing. Capital markets, you know, on the buy side, sell side, and, and at central banks, fiscal has not generally been a significant um, driver and thematic for markets for a prolonged period of time. And we've talked about this, I think, on a few of the most recent podcasts. But maybe it shows up for a day or two or a week or maybe a couple of weeks, but that's usually it. And some of the, I wouldn't call it a perfect storm, uh, but the 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 multitude of events that we had starting in late July and coming through kind of mid to late August um, really started to 
bring fiscal into the fore. And it's a thematic, I think that, and not everyone agrees with me, and that's totally fair, but it's a thematic and a driver, I think, that's been happening to markets for a while. So to rewind three months ago, we had the Treasury, the U.S. Treasury's um, quarterly refunding announcement, which sounds very academic and it is in a way. But at that announcement, the Treasury basically said, we're going to be issuing a lot more paper. Uh, than where I think the market had been expecting, at least primary dealers had been expecting. And so just very simply put, more supply and the same demand usually means prices lower, yields higher for any good or commodity or service. And um, more supply and less demand would probably mean even a bigger uh, reaction function for, for that. And we've seen clearly some concern over kind of the U.S. fiscal outlook with uh, debt GP ratios, the budget, um, what's been happening from a downgrade perspective, uh, what's been happening in the House with the speaker race and all those sorts of things, and a multitude of other things. And we could be here for hours and talking about that. But sure. you know, for the purposes of this this podcast, I think you know that really – at least for me, and I think a number of other people too on the street really recentered the focus. And and I was saying to the crew here, you know, I think fiscal could be a driver for more than a week or two. Like this could be a month or two or even a couple of quarters. And here we are now, um, this week, and you know, three months after uh, plus. And I think fiscal at least has been the driver for those three months. We had the most recent quarterly refunding announcement kind of three months forward uh, this past week, the same day as the Fed, really. There was something on Monday and then something Wednesday morning. But let's just say it's essentially this week and and essentially the same day as the Fed. Um, And so what we got this time was different than last time uh, three months ago, whereby although the Treasury did increase the supply a little bit, it was less than the market was expecting. And then kind of the, the subline there is that when uh, a bit of a, a bit academic again, but in terms of the issuance, you know, where are they issuing? Are they issuing T-bills? Are they issuing coupons, i.e. kind of medium or longer term bonds and where? And they basically issued less coupons and more bills than most people expected. So again, if you're issuing less coupons, so let's say fives, tens, thirties, uh, that means there's less supply, right? So if the demand's the same, then in theory, price is higher, yields lower. And that's what we saw in the immediate aftermath of that, of that announcement. So I think that, uh, and not to not to fine tooth it too too much, but I think that this idea of fiscal issuance supply as a thematic and a, and a driver has been has been good for us, and and you know kind of good in terms of you know, figuring out what's important to markets. Um, but I think that has gone from kind of the front, the front burner to the back burner. I don't, I wouldn't totally give up on it, but I think given the announcement this week, it's kind of gone to the back burner where I think that could become a driver again is if the budget process, the federal budget process, and there's still a government shutdown looming here by uh, November 17th, depending on how that negotiation comes together and it's obviously more than just about the house the senate obviously has to sign off on it as does as does the white house um but depending on what gets put into that bill the next three months from the you know in three months time from now around early february in q1 that number could be quite large and again it's not only about the 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 gross number but it's also about the net and you know where where spending offsets 
Um, and that bun fight is going to happen over the next two or three weeks or maybe more uh, if there's a government shutdown in terms of trying to figure out where that goes. And then, of course, beyond that to where I was a minute ago, you know, where, if they are going to issue new debt, where is it going to be? Is it going to be bills, very, very short end, or is it going to be coupons and then where kind of fives, tens, you know, twenties, thirties, what have you? Um, because where it gets issued, not just the amount, also, also counts. But hmm. I think that – I think we're going to see a pretty spendy type of bill that eventually gets passed. It's obviously a 2024 next year. It's federal election year in the U.S. I don't think people want to be cutting spending too, too much. Um, obviously, there's been significant uh, strife and, and difficulty in the Middle East. It looks very much like uh, the U.S. is going to put forward a, 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 uh, a spending bill that's going to include some some help for for Israel, some, some defense spending for Israel. The Ukraine uh, spending, which could be 50 or 60 billion, is going to be back on the table. We'll see if Republicans want to do it. There's money for Taiwan. One, there's money for the border. Uh, there's a number of other smaller things too, but you know, we're probably looking at you know 80, 90, 100, 110 billion in extra spending. You know, where's this going to come from? Are they going to have uh, spending cuts that are going to match this? I doubt it. Uh, so that's new money that needs to get printed. Who's going to mop up that paper? Supply higher. You know all those things. So, I think the quarterly refunding announcement in February is going to be interesting. And I'm, I, you know, obviously yields have traded lower since uh, since this quarterly refunding announcement that we just had, the November Q4 announcement. And I think that's fair. I think that's reasonable. Um, all I'm saying is let's not give up on the thematic and that this thematic is done for now. I don't think that is the case. And uh, I'm still, you know, I'm still cautious around, uh, uh, there are many other things going on too, but from a fiscal perspective, uh, I'm still cautious that we could see yields uh, trend higher again, depending on the U.S. fiscal situation. Great context uh, on the U.S. Why don't we shift the focus to Canada? Bank Canada had a recent meeting. Um, obviously, uh, rates uh, remained where they were. And certainly, it feels like in Canada, the economic outlook is a bit weaker than the U.S. Uh, I guess, for one, would you agree with that? And, and two, what are you seeing for Canada? So the Canadian story, I think, is very interesting and is starting to play out uh, as I think uh, we expected. So we know that Q2, uh, Q2 GDP, real GDP in Canada printed negative just slightly a month or two ago uh, when we got that number. And we now know that the monthly uh, numbers that roll in, which are not the national account numbers and don't take into totality the, the big national account uh, numbers, which are more accurate than the monthly numbers. But to be fair, the monthly numbers, when you look at the actual and then the flash number, as they say, uh, we have the actual for July and August and the flash number for September. It seems to be trending towards no growth around around zero uh give or take again a lot of things don't necessarily get get computed into that so it's 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 an okay it's a decent estimate it's definitely i wouldn't want to i wouldn't want to sign off on something based on just that estimate but regardless it looks like growth in q2 and q3 in canada is looking quite sluggish and below where the bank of canada had been expecting uh had been expecting growth to be when it did its forecast uh, at, the, at its last meeting in October, uh, which, which again obviously was a forecast round. They were looking for 0.8% real GDP growth, which is not not 
you know, outstanding anyway for Q3, and that, that number could be in jeopardy. So you're starting to see these headlines uh, come around, click around in terms of you know Canada, Canada on the cusp of recession, Canada on the verge of recession type thing. And that may or may not be true, two consecutive quarters of negative GDP, but that could be happening. Uh, so the bank obviously left rates on hold at uh, at 5% as, as expected. And they're very much, I think, or it is very much in kind of a wait, a wait and see mode. Um, the inflation data domestically here in Canada has, has definitely slowed a little bit, particularly headline. Uh, but core is uh, becoming very, very, uh, I would say beyond sticky here and, and getting structural. And I would say it's a concern for the bank. And the takeaway, one of the takeaways for me from the bank's meeting last week was that they are clearly concerned at the pace that core inflation on an annual basis anyway is not coming lower. Uh, that that is that that is definitely a concern, and at the same time, obviously, you have a, a slowing economy. Whether it's recession or not, it's it's quite a bit slower. Uh, that's that's almost irrefutable at this point. Sure, we obviously have a very high beta economy here that's very tied to the housing market, variable rates. We I mean, generally people know that there's going to be a pretty big reset risk in in 24 and 25 and 26, and I mean that that that's going to be that's going to be problematic. So, you know, the last part podcast we did, which I think was, again, the week after, or sorry, the week just following the, the Thanksgiving Monday, you know, we talked about what the market was pricing for the Bank of Canada outlook. And uh, I, I, think, I think I said a few things. And one in particular was that the, just looking at the end of next year, the December 2024 OIS contract was uh, the week before the, 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 uh, the podcast we recorded was above 5% maybe a little bit, maybe three basis points. So call it 503 or something like that. And I think I said something along the lines at the time, you know, that seems odd. Uh, if not odd, then off. Um, because we're sitting at five, given what I think is already happening and what is probably about to happen, not only immediately with the, the GDP data, but also what I think is happening for 24. You know, why is the market pricing the bank rate to be essentially flat, technically slightly higher in 14 months' time? Like that just does not, that just does not make sense to me. And so what we've seen since the last podcast, and I think when we record the last podcast, that that December 24 contract had started to come down to into the 480s. Not sure exactly where, but let's call it 485, just to kind of split the difference. So that contract uh, traded around 440 yesterday. So another 40 basis points wow. uh, has has come out. I actually think it was in the 30s midday, but I'm not. I'm actually not sure where it closed. But let's say, let's say 440. So there's been over 60 basis points since I was starting to look at that kind of really aggressively at 503. Um, Probably 60, 65 basis points there in terms of what, you know, air coming out of the tire in terms of, you know, the market readjusting and thinking about where that should, you know, where the Bank of Canada pricing should be. And of course, who knows, right? Who knows how that will go? Um, Only time will tell. We'll only know for sure once we get through those dates. And that's an estimate for now. And we'll see, we'll see how things go, right? I mean, something could, something could happen. It could be very much higher for longer. The bank doesn't cut next year. That, That could happen. That is not, that is definitely not my view. So I think that, profile from the market now is really starting to uh, exhibit, I think, a more appropriate pathway and profile for where the Bank of Canada should go. So there are a lot of interesting opportunities from a fixed income perspective, from a Canadian duration, um, you know, Canadian duration plays in various ways to look at that, whether it's just outright or, you know, spread trades versus the U.S., 
um, and given given how the markets move. But I think you know the market is clearly moving in the direction that we thought it would move. And I would also say one more thing that kind of take away from the the meeting as well as we got it from the Macklem interview uh, earlier this week. There was some talk, you know, uh, rewind maybe three months ago, four months ago. You know, basically the language is, you know, we're getting to two percent. We're getting to two percent. I don't, I don't disbelieve that that's true. I think that the bank really wants to get to two percent inflation. But I think the question is, would the bank wait to get to two percent and then ease rates, or would it maybe start to think about easing rates before it got to two percent inflation? And at the press conference for the Bank Canada meeting last week. Uh, Senior Deputy Governor Rogers essentially said that the bank could cut rates before inflation in Canada got to 2%. And then Macklem essentially reiterated those comments this week. And I think that's really interesting. And that may or may not be reading a little too much in between the lines, but I think it shows the evolution of the narrative uh, at the bank uh, a little bit. Uh, and I'm not surprised because I think, you know, back to my, kind of my three camps theory that, you know, I've talked about, I think with you a number of times on these podcasts, you know, there, at every central bank, there's going to be three camps. There's going to be the hawks that are going to say it's 2% or whatever the target is, but let's call it 2% no matter what. Um, no, that's where we're going and that's where it has to be. They're going to be the doves. They're going to say, you know, 3%, give or take, is fine. I don't, inflation, I don't want to cause any more economic malaise to get to 2%. That doesn't seem to be worth it. And then the third camp would obviously be, you know, the camp in the middle, whatever that is, you know, 2.5%, 2 and 3 quarters percent, something else, right? And obviously it has to be stable there. It can't just kind of touch it and then move higher again or, or, you know, bounce around or sort of thing. So it has to be relatively stable. But I think that there's a small... Mm, changing of the narrative very early days around thinking or at least messaging to the market that the bank doesn't need to see 2% inflation. Bank Canada doesn't need to see 2% inflation. It can cut rates before 2%. I think that's also that change in narrative, which I'm not totally surprised in, Mm. is helping to push market pricing expectations uh, for for cuts, you know, higher, Bank Canada cuts higher uh, for 2024. Great context there as well. Over the past uh, year, it feels like, or maybe even longer, uh, we've frequently talked about the Bank of Japan mm-hmm. and them being the the outlier, uh, call it amongst all central banks uh, in their yep. in their policy. I want to check in on on what's the latest out of the Bank of Japan and, and how are you thinking about it? Yeah, for sure, uh, it's a good question. So. Um, the Bank of Japan had a meeting earlier this week. What's generally not always, but generally been the case this year is the Fed's had a meeting in the bank. Bank of Japan's been kind of 36, 48 hours later. Uh, but this time we actually had the Bank of Japan meeting before the Fed meeting, which is a little bit, a little bit different. Um, so the bank, Bank of Japan did decide to tweak yield curve control, its yield curve control policy at the most recent meeting, and it's a, it's a late October meeting, but kept rates still uh, at the same, uh, and rates in Japan are still minus 10 basis points, minus 10 basis points, which look, again, a little bit off-center given kind of where uh, I think the world's been, been normalizing for a bit. We had expected, I, I in particular had expected a, a bigger a bigger change from the bank. So the bank did did make a tweak, uh, but I had expected that the bank could move its uh, 10-year uh, Japanese government bond cap uh, and allow j- uh, 10-year JGBs, Japanese government bonds, to trade as high as 150 basis points, 1.5%. That didn't happen. Uh, what we did get was... Um, 
a, a tweak in the language around the ceiling, which is still 100, but instead of being a hard cap at 100, it's now a reference point, quote unquote, which is a lot softer in terms of that. Also, the target for the Bank of Japan, Japan's yield curve control went from 0% plus or minus 50 basis points to 0% plus or minus 100 basis points. So they're effectively widening the band, but they've also they've already allowed the bonds to trade up there anyway, and that was part of the market functionality uh, discussion that we had after the July Bank of Japan meeting, which, you know, not to go back, but dovetailed very much into one of the few things that start, one of the many things I should say that started the move uh, higher in global yields in late July and into August, like we were talking about earlier in the in the podcast here. So the other thing that the bank did, and these are all minor things, but they they all add up, was they, they started dumping uh, the daily auction process in terms of being in, in the market. So they're saying basically, okay, we're going to intervene in theory. I mean, we'll see if it actually happens in practice, but uh, we're going to, in theory, intervene less in the in the bond market. Uh, so if bond yields do continue to grind higher, uh, there's maybe a less a less propensity for the bank to to directly intervene and, and push and push yields back lower against probably a lot of people, you know, in the speculative community. So one thing I, I would say is that in the press conference, uh, Governor Udea did also say that. Um, he did not expect to see bond yields, 10-year yields in particular, at 125 or 150 basis points. So I think he's trying to uh, still be relatively cautious, at least verbally, and doesn't want the market to run away or else they would have to obviously intervene maybe relatively quickly. But I think the big takeaway here, the net takeaway, I guess, is that uh, although we didn't get the big kind of step function move higher in in JGB uh, yields, Japanese government bond yields, that grind higher is still very much in effect. And I think that the market yeah. will continue to, to test the Bank of Japan's resolve there. And it's clear to me that the bank is in its own way and you know everyone's got everyone's got a way to do things um in its own way trying to remove the yield curve control program without having uh, a massive uh step function uh risky event which you know obviously most central banks don't want to be seen to be causing volatility in capital markets so i get it i understand it's just you know the normalization process for japanese yields and i would say the japanese policy rate still at minus 10 basis points is uh is very is very slow but the domestic data in Japan, I think, allows this to happen. The inflation numbers are still, particularly for Japan, but they're still they're still somewhat frothy. Um, and then expectations uh, for fiscal 24 and fiscal 25 inflation, uh, you know, a little bit a little bit higher, not massively higher, but a little bit higher. And it allows, I think, the bank to continue to remove that type of, you know, very, very significant accommodation here. So I would expect another uh, tweak at the December meeting, the BOJ's December meeting. I'm not totally sure what that that tweak looks like yet. I'm going to spend a little more time thinking about that and talking to people. But uh, I do think that that's happening. And I think probably in the first half of next year, and maybe even in Q1, we will see the Bank of Japan hike rates for the first time in a very, very long time, the policy rate. And that first hike might be 10 basis points to go from minus 10 to zero, as opposed to a 25 right. basis point hike or something like that. But um, but directionally, still, still like that JGB trade um, and, and have it on the portfolio. Good. Perfect segue to maybe expanding on what else you're doing uh, in the portfolio outside of that specific trade. Give me some some ideas on what the recent action has caused you to look into. 
there's a lot there's a lot going on as as one can expect and we've tried to be a little bit more active tactical alpha trading around these markets when they think that they've swung a little too far in either direction um, in the in the relatively short term maybe just to cover off the, the 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 Japan trade a little bit so as an example of what I just said uh, a few weeks ago we added uh, I mean we have our core position our structural position in JGBs which we've had since April 2022 uh, being short the futures uh, the uh, short the futures and you know that's obviously done that's done well for us we added to that position a few weeks ago based on what we were seeing in the market not only for JGBs but global yields um, and and a bit of a pullback in very in kind of what I would call very short term at that time and so we had added a little bit of uh, additional short JGB positions and have subsequently taken that off uh, ex post the Bank of Japan meeting. But we still have a significant core position on in JGB futures, short futures, so so prices lower, yields higher. A lot of juice has happened there, but we still think that we can see another, I would say, I don't know, 20 or 30 basis points, uh, maybe 15 to 20, 25, 15 to 25 basis points here, given where the market's moved. Um, and that's that's a core holding for us. It's a very large short position for our unconstrained fund for our global funds and uh and we also have it on in our in our core plus fund uh as well uh, from a short duration perspective so that that's a big one and it's a big when you look at contribution to duration so to speak which you do from a fixed income portfolio management perspective that those shorts are those shorts are not are not insignificant and uh so we spend a lot of time monitoring that for for obvious reasons and i still like it i think the majority of the people on the team still like it too uh, the Canada, going back to where we were a couple minutes ago on the Canada side, I mean, obviously, given what's been happening, there's been um, there's been interesting opportunities to to do. So um, one thing I would say is we we generally like Canadian duration over U.S. duration. So we like being long Canadian bonds versus U.S. bonds. Broadly speaking, nominal bonds. Um, you know, maybe not every time, but but a lot. I mean, the market's moved a little bit, but we still we still like that position. Uh, we still like that position a fair bit, and uh, much of the reason is because of you know the macro stuff. I was going through a couple minutes ago where um, where the bank seems to be changing uh, its narrative a little bit, ever so slowly, and obviously the data seems to be corroborating that as well. One of the ways we actually we did something um, we did a what, what we would call a receiver a receiver swaption. Um, so we're buying an option on a swap in the short end uh, of Canada uh, in the past in the past week or so to try and take advantage of what we think will be the continued evolution in market pricing for the Bank of Canada for 2024 to kind of take advantage of that. So we put that on not massive size, but just to have it on from a from a positioning perspective. And there are a lot of other I think interesting duration plays on on the Canadian side. But you know, one thing that I think our our listeners should take away and our investors and clients should take away is that we. Fixed income continues to continues to like, um, and we have for a while uh, Canadian duration over U.S. duration, at least on on the nominal side. And maybe the last, uh, maybe two more things. One one more on the U.S. side in particular. Uh, kind of speaking of short term tactical alpha and being in and out, we've been in and out a number of times in the, uh, the WN contracts, which is a, a futures position uh, that that uh, mirrors the long end of the U.S. Treasury curve. Again, kind of playing a few of these 
uh, thematic themes, particularly on the fiscal uh, and issuance side, and and trying to make a little bit of uh, short-term alpha on the back of that with with some success for sure. Um, again, not not massive PL, but trying to take advantage of, of relatively short-term market, what we would perceive as market dislocations. Um, and so that's been that's been quite interesting to kind of play uh, to play the uh, the WN the WN futures market a little bit uh, generally from the short side, but not always uh, as yields have been moving higher. So that that's been okay. And then maybe the last thing I'll mention, uh, still very very focused on EM as always. I mean the the very very simplistic cheat sheet on EM is if you think that the dollar is going higher. And U.S. rates are going higher, like the yield curve rates, and I guess policy rate too is going higher. That's probably not good for EM broadly as an asset class, particularly local currency uh, debt. Um, and then the, the the opposite is true. Uh, if if U.S. rates are falling and if the dollar is falling, it's probably a little bit more constructive for. Um, for EM. So we've been in this EM trade in size, I would say, particularly for unconstrained and global, uh, but also some of our other funds like Core Plus have had some EM exposure, maybe a bit more ETF exposure than single line mm. uh, names exposure. But um, both global and unconstrained have had a very significant, particularly LATAM in Brazil and Max uh, exposure for sure. So we've, uh, we still like those positions, but we've shaved a little bit off uh, for a couple of reasons. One, the positions have gone on our way. So the, the weighting was actually getting above where we had initially said we wanted to be at from a max perspective. So we kind of trimmed it to be you know, manage, managing the risk, so to speak. And then secondly, sure. I think rates higher, obviously US rates higher, global yields are higher too, but you know, rates higher and the dollar continuing to have a bid, US dollar continuing to have a bid. Um, you know, we're a little bit concerned about some of these, maybe the 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 EMs that are not quite as high yielding on the nominal or the or the real side. So we've cut our our Indonesia position and we've taken a little bit of profit on uh, on our on our Max and our Brazil position, and we still have a little bit of uh, RSA uh, Republic of South Africa uh, position as well. And then obviously some of the other funds have our um, our local currency ETF that we have that we have in house that is a little bit more Asia focused. Uh, and so uh, Asia EM is generally a little bit lower yielding. So again, as these U.S. rates uh, and dollar are rising, I would think that from a regional perspective, if you just look broadly, you know Asia, LATAM, and then emerging Europe. Asia is probably most at risk, oil importers, and uh, lower yielding security. So, uh, so we've been easing out of some of that, um, some of that ETF, which I think is, uh, you know, which I think is a good is a good trade and, and prudent for the uh, for the portfolio. So yeah, so there's four that we, you know, I've been pretty pretty focused on. Uh, there are definitely there are definitely many others, particularly also on, you know, on the credit side. Uh, we know which Dan Cooper and his team obviously spends uh, a great amount of time looking at and does a does a fantastic job. Um, but yeah, from a macro top down perspective, those are four I've been kind of very, very focused on for the last uh, three, four, five weeks. Dustin, that's great. Thanks so much for taking the time to walk through this, a very complicated environment. I learned a lot. Thanks again. Anytime. Great to be here. The content of this podcast, including facts, views, opinions, and recommendations, is not to be used or construed as investment advice and is not an offer or an invitation to buy or sell any security content of this podcast should not be relied upon for any purposes and McKenzie Financial Corporation is not responsible for any reliance upon it. This podcast includes forward-looking information that reflects our current expectations or forecasts of future events. 
forward-looking information is subject to risks, uncertainties, and assumptions that could cause actual results to differ materially from those expressed herein. Our views are subject to change based on market conditions. Commissions, trailing commissions, management fees, and expenses may be associated with mutual fund investments. Please read the fund facts and prospectus before investing. The indicated rates of returns are historical annual compounded total returns, including changes to unit values and reinvestment of all dividends or distributions and does not take into account sales, redemptions, distribution, or optional charges or income taxes payable by any security holder that would have reduced returns.